pioneering animal rights activist, lawyer and philosopher Stephen Wise passed away aged 73. We look at his legacy. In the UK, the Labour Party vows to eliminate fox hunting by the end of the decade. And it's official vegan snoreless. And just as Anthony moves away from Worcester, the local mayor makes council dinners 100% vegan. Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Anthony. I'm Kate. I'm Paul. And I'm Julie. And this is episode 43 of Vegan Week. Welcome to episode 43 of Vegan Week. We're here once again to look at the week's vegan and animal rights news, discussing the issues that really matter, continuing to broaden our horizons and keep on learning, and also highlighting some of the current campaigns so that we can take action on behalf of the animals as well. Yes, indeed. And we're delighted to be doing so in partnership with the 100% vegan business Fire and Flow Coffee. If you love great coffee, want to spend your money with vegan businesses and love a cheeky discount, head over to fireandflowcoffee.co.uk and enter Falafel10. That's Falafel10 at the checkout to get a 10% off your order. Paul, you've been with us before on the show, on the infamous Tech Issue Christmas special, as well as the Going Vegan show. But today's your first time on Vegan Week. Brilliant to have you with us. Thanks very much. Uh, Third time lucky, maybe. (laughs) Indeed. Right. Let's get on with it. Enough of the falafel. It's vegan news time. So... As always, we're going to whiz through about a dozen stories super quick and then afterwards we'll pick a couple of these to examine in a bit more detail, including our main story for the week, where we look back on the life and legacy of Stephen Wise, the animal rights activist, lawyer and philosopher who passed away last week. Indeed. So let's start off with news directly affecting non-human animals right now. Animal welfare charities have welcomed an Africa-wide ban on the controversial donkey skin trade. African state leaders approved the ban at the conclusion of the African Union Summit in Ethiopia on Sunday. It will make it illegal to slaughter donkeys for their skin across the continent. Staying in Africa, 11 lions rescued from war-torn Sudan were released at Lions Rock Big Cat Sanctuary in South Africa. On Saturday, animal welfare organisation Four Paws rescued the lions along with 46 other wild animals. The animals were flown out of Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. In the Caribbean, marine and coastal ecosystems face a critical threat due to an oil spill from a capsized vessel near Trinidad and Tobago. The oil spill has now extended its reach to Grenada's territorial waters and poses a potential risk to Venezuela's coastline as well. The incident, which was detected by Trinidad and Tobago's Coast Guard, has seen the oil spill move across the Caribbean Sea for the past 10 days. And finally, 
Back to Africa, authorities in Cape Town have launched an investigation after a foul stench swept across the South African city before the source of the smell was discovered, namely a live export ship docked in the harbour carrying 19,000 live cattle from Brazil to Iraq. Animal welfare groups have said that the unimaginable stench indicated the conditions that the animals faced on the vessel and criticised the practice of live exports. Several studies to report on this week. First up, research from China focusing on the biodiversity footprints of 151 popular dishes from around the world has concluded that vegan and vegetarian dishes tend to have lower biodiversity footprints. The research also suggested that legume dishes such as chickpea curry had a surprisingly high impact across multiple countries. In Flinders University, Australia, researchers found that people who eat a healthy plant-based diet that is high in vegetables, fruit, whole grains and nuts are less likely to suffer with obstructive sleep apnea. The research team conducted one of the first large-scale analyses of the correlation between plant-based diets and OSA risk. Those eating a plant-based diet were 19% less likely to be suffering with OSA compared with those eating diets that were lowest in plant-based food. And finally, research into the behaviour of great apes has shown even greater similarities between them and human animals as they demonstrated clear evidence of playful teasing. The researchers also coined a useful description for anyone who enjoys a bit of playful teasing themselves. Intentionally provocative asymmetric behaviour with varying proportions of playful and aggressive elements. What could be more innocent? In business news, according to research by Rebobank, European dairy sales were sluggish in 2023, with many Western European countries seeing weaker than expected sales. Companies in regions such as Australia, Brazil and China also saw decreased demand last year, whereas figures published last year revealed that European plant-based milk sales had risen by 49% in the space of two years. In the world of film, vegan activist Joey Carbstrong has made his directional debut with his first full-length documentary, Pignorant. The film's PR describes Joey as an ex-gang member who was inspired by his love for pigs to make the film, inspiring him to undertake a life-risking mission to cover the truth behind bacon. And finally, perhaps perfectly timed with a question from Thursday's Vegan Talk, BMW is offering a completely animal-free interior option for the 5 Series Touring. The seat surfaces are made from the innovative material Veganza, and according to the company, the interior design of the new vehicle sets new standards in terms of animal welfare and sustainability. And to finish off with, there's some good news on the campaign front this week. In the UK, the Labour Party has vowed to eliminate loopholes in the fox hunting ban if it gets into power later this year. According to the opposition party, there is no majority in any part of the country that wants fox hunting to continue. In Paul's neck of the woods, Worcester's first green mayor has taken meat off the menu at his council receptions to offer city councillors solely plant-based food. Councillor Louis Stephen said he'd made the decision 
to highlight how everyone could make a contribution to tackling climate change. In a shocking double salvo abroad, however, awful plans are afoot that put tens of thousands of innocent monkeys in harm's way. Firstly, there's the plan to establish the largest monkey breeding facility in the US, which would allow 30,000 macaques to roam within outfitted warehouses in Georgia. The plans are facing a furious backlash from animal rights groups and some local residents, especially as the local town, Bainbridge, has a human population of just 14,000. The sprawling 200-acre complex would house the monkeys who would then be sent out to universities and pharmaceutical companies for medical research. In similarly terrible news, a man already facing animal cruelty charges wants to build a monkey breeding farm in Mauritius. Shamfik Jumun, the director of Hammerhead International Limited, is currently under investigation for running an illegal monkey farm. However, his company aims to develop a facility that can keep up to 12,000 long-tailed macaques captive. It plans to capture 40 to 50 wild macaques daily, potentially totaling up to 15,000 monkeys annually. And finally, as part of the ongoing controversy around live exports in Australia, many protesters have gathered to rally against live animal exports outside a Perth building where the federal cabinet is meeting. The federal government has already promised to end the live export of sheep by sea if it's elected for another term. And if live export of animals is an issue that concerns you, you'll be pleased to know that you can take some action against it here in the UK. The Animal Welfare Livestock Exports Bill, which will end the export of cows, sheep, goats and pigs for fattening or slaughter, needs strengthening so that it includes things like for breeding purposes and also so that it includes birds who are not included by this um, proposed legislation at the moment. So chickens and ducks, there are more of them are exported than any other type of animal. If you go on the Animal Justice Project Facebook page, there's a link to a petition on there. And the last time I looked was yesterday and it was at 91%. So please consider going on there and adding your voice to that campaign. And that would make all the difference for animals. Nice one, Julie. Thank you. Yeah, I just wondered, aren't crabs and lobsters, aren't they exported live as well? I don't know the answer to that. I had a horrible feeling that they all get packaged up and exported, you know, abroad. I think they all get exported at the moment, but we're trying to get it banned. Looks like they need to go on the list as well, maybe, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. (laughs) 
Okay, now all those stories can be read in more detail by following the links in our show notes. We've not got time to look at all of these stories in detail now. However, we have going to hear a favourite pick from each of us. Kate, which one of these stories caught your eye in particular this week? Okay, so I had three studies to look at and one of which was all about snoring and I just thought, hooray, yes, yet another thing that plant-based diets are great for, it can, they can help you stop snoring. Probably because I think linked to perhaps obesity and redu- they reduce inflammation and stuff. So I'm not going to talk about that one. But the, the study I really want to talk about is the one on biodiversity footprints. And that is not to do with uh, carbon footprints, which we've become quite familiar with. But I sort of read the study and I was really quite confused through quite a, quite a lot of it because they, they didn't seem to be explicit as, as to whether a biodiversity footprint is a good thing or a bad thing I actually went to the Daily Mail to see their take on it <laughs> and and realized oh yeah they mean it's they mean it's a bad thing so um <laughs> thank you Daily Mail so I, I was a little bit triggered by it because although they say that meat diets are um have a have a large biodiversity footprint legumes apparently have a large biodiversity footprint as well well, although they say that vegan and vegetarian diets have a better biodiversity overall, which seems a bit contradictory. Yeah, so they actually looked at the impact of various ingredients for 151 really popular dishes from around the world, whether they were grown locally or globally, etc. Um, but they didn't, for some reason, they didn't include Africa. So, but they looked at species richness of where these various ingredients were grown, whether species were threatened, and whether there are particularly rare species there. And I guess they they looked at the red red list of endangered species, but they only took into account mammals, amphibians, and birds, no insects and other creatures, and they didn't look at the impact on waterways either. So no impacts on like fish and various other creatures within the within rivers. So they found that vegan and vegetarian dishes, like I said, had a better biodiversity footprint overall. But that seemed to be mainly to do with dishes that were very starch intensive, such as from potatoes and wheat. Whereas legumes, they gave a huge thumbs down. So dishes, they, they kind of singled out chana dal, which is a, a very, very popular dish in India, which is based in chickpeas as being particularly bad. And also lentil soup, they mentioned as being bad as well. So poor old lentils. But as we know, no agriculture at all is without negative impacts. And vegan diets also, we can't help but have a bit of a negative impact. But as we know, the if the world went entirely vegan or plant-based and just ate only chana dal for breakfast, lunch and dinner, uh, maybe with the odd lentil soup, uh, we would be able to give back 75% of the land back to the wild, back to full biodiversity. And so that seems a bit at odds as to what they're saying overall about uh, legumes. So I think I think it might actually say more about the agricultural system, which is just terrible, than these individual meals. So India, for example, was well, mind you, most of the meals were meat 
very, very heavy meat, and very few were vegetarian or vegan dishes. But anyway, so India, for example, it was a predominantly plant-based culture, as was the UK a long time ago. But now meat consumption and dairy has become absolutely mega. And perhaps, possibly, legume production has gone out of the hands of small farmers and is now in the hands of large corporations, large large producers, uh, who are maybe and going to more marginal land and clearing the land. I don't know, because obviously if if there's more meat and dairy being produced there, there's going to be less land for the vegetable and legume dishes. So unfortunately, these headlines about legumes is that it's bad to be eating them, as bad as eating meat, uh, as far as biodiversity is concerned. Um, You know, people are, they are picking up on that. But I think carry on eating the hummus, you know, hummus will save the planet. And, uh, you know, I think you just have to try and look behind some of these headlines. And and actually, we grow chickpeas and lentils in the UK. Shout out for Hodmidods, who uh, support our local farmer, feed people directly rather than growing pulses or grains or whatever to feed the cattle to then feed people. So anyway, that's my take on that. Hodma Dodds are quite local to you, aren't they, Kate? Are they in Suffolk, or have I made that up? No, they are. They are. They are. And uh, we've got quite a few um, farms, including permaculture farms uh, in Norfolk and Suffolk as well, Essex. They're doing a brilliant job, I think, of buying crops directly from farmers that are going, so those crops are going for human consumption. Farmers are getting a much better price for, for those crops as well. So, yeah, they're doing a brilliant job, I think. If I can jump in here and just comment on a couple of things that you've you've mentioned too Kate like the the coverage that this got in the daily mail was completely ridiculous really really irritating in that yeah the study's conclusion was that vegan and vegetarian meals were the kindest to biodiversity and yet their headline on the mail online is scientists reveal the 10 worst dishes for the environment including several vegan in capital letters options it's like that's that that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. The fact that for, for whatever reason, lentils and chickpeas are for some for some reason, some sort of taboo. Well, don't eat them then. If that's what you're concerned about, eat all the other plants and just avoid those two particular pulses if that's your problem. Completely, completely ridiculous. It's Well, it's not true, though, really. You know, overall, like I said, if people everyone ate them then there would be no biodiversity crisis it's the animals in the agriculture that is creating the biodiversity crisis so just get the animals out of the system everything will be fine also there doesn't seem to be anything taken into account in terms of like we're saying poor biodiversity is a bad thing presumably because of the the suffering of animals that are living in nature and are and are suffering but like what about the billions of animals that are being killed unnecessarily for food it's like they don't count they don't count as part of biodiversity their feelings and and suffering isn't isn't part of that equation like there's one thing you can say for sure about a chickpea curry like there's no <laughs> dead animal in it or no suffering animal <laughs> in that ditch i guess they they weren't actually looking at that though were they but anyway it's quite interesting how 
um, it some something can give a completely different spin on you know how how a, a science study is designed can give a completely different spin and come up with a completely weird idea really at the end I don't know there's more than one way to grow a chickpea <laughs> yeah. you know there are farming methods that are more polluting than others mm. Exactly. And I don't know, you know, what methods they were looking at, but um, there are, there's ways of using fertilizer and working with the land, and there's ways of doing things in a way that pleases big companies that are selling you lots of chemicals to put on your crops, etc., which all affects biodiversity. Precisely. That's all I've got to say. Precisely. So we need to change the system. That yeah, the whole system yes. is just wrong. Anyway, Paul, what about you? Which of those stories captured your attention over the others? Uh, well, there's a few that caught my attention. Um, I'm a bit of a car saddo, so I quite like the sound of the BMW 5 Series seats. But um, that's not really that new news, to be honest. There's a lot of cars now that offer that. So it's not, in my view, not much new news. There's a lot of cars that offer that now. And there's some great auto industry um, people in Germany advocating for non-leather seats as well so it's a good good story the fact that bmw's pr um said with that one the interior of the design of the new vehicle sets new standards in terms of animal welfare and sustainability i thought well why, why don't you do it for all of them then like if you've set a new standard like why are you lowering it for most of your cars uh, absolutely yeah i mean it's it's uh there's loads of stuff there to tap into but i mean yeah it, it, really we need to make leather and appear to be a non-luxury product now i think and i know people that work for car manufacturers and i know somebody who worked for toyota who worked quite senior in toyota and they said they hate making leather seats they're a nightmare to do they're expensive they they want to move as a manufacturer away from it but i guess you know the, the demand is still there from some segments of buyers um but yeah there's been loads of manufacturers you know i, I i've got another german car and that's that's a, a vegan interior available for, for for many years porsche even have got one um but they want six grand for it which put me off slightly I have to say. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's obviously the new Polestar in Volvo cars, all vegan interiors as well. So they're kind of sounding the trumpet like it's uh, a, a bit of a first, but it's it's kind of where we should be. It's not, you know, it's like you say, we, we're, we're a bit slow on the uptake, as, uh, if anything. Speaking up for the girl racers and the boy racers among us, little Corsas, which is what I drive and I'm not embarrassed about it, they have vegan-friendly non-leather but sort of leathery seats in their higher spec models if higher spec model isn't a kind of contradiction in terms of the Vauxhall Corsa but they're really blooming yeah, nice yeah and they they you know yeah I mean I think in general as well uh, leather seats um and even mock leather seats I guess to some degree you know arguably in the summer that they can be too hot if you don't have cool coolers on them and, and can be freezing cold in the winter if you don't have the, the heating on them so you know I, I think as a material a, a soft fabric material is actually I think it's a bit more practical at the end of the day um, I know it's maybe slightly less wearing um, in some cases but I don't see I don't I've never have understood the appeal of leather interior kind of having an animal splashed mm. around the seats and the dashboard it's it's pretty macabre when you think about it isn't it um but yes my uh, the the Anyway, the story that I did settle on, uh, and it has to be the one that I have to have to really, was the uh, one that's very local to me. I can't really not talk about this. So, yeah, our local mayor, Louis Stevens, as I said earlier on, um, and for total transparency, Louis is someone that I 
know through um, social media. Uh, I wouldn't say we're personal friends, but you know, we, we kind of do chat on social media. Um, made the choice to remove meat from uh, mayoral receptions, which amounts to about six events a year. So we're not talking a, a, a big impact, perhaps arguably a bit more symbolic than anything else. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a thing. It's notable that Louis stated his reason for this was to draw attention to the environmental impact of of meat so he's talking more about the environment aspects which you would probably expect from the green party members less so on the obviously the um yeah, impact on animals directly my view um, this is a pretty positive story to draw attention to this but not so much obviously for directly the, the animals and it's probably not likely to satisfy the sort of abolitionist vegans who would say going vegetarian on on the meal is perhaps not enough but um my view is small steps it's um it's certainly garnered a lot of attention and it was in BBC. I think it was an article I saw in the Telegraph. I think I think it was on the radio as well. So it's got attention. That's always a good thing in my book. I mean, the the, the laughable point about this, I think, is that it it triggered a full council debate, which is obviously time consuming and their taxpayers' money. Um, triggered by relatively well known Tory gammon uh, chap around here, uh, Councillor Amos, who's if you even if you speak to Tories around here, I don't think he's particularly popular. He's made all sorts of outrageous statements and decisions not you know with quite practical things for the city like cycle lanes and stuff like that i think he used it more of a case to jump on kind of you know tofu eating uh wokerati kind of a, approach really but basically the the bit that was most laughable for me was that and, and wait for it his, his main problem with it was that it was discriminatory against meat eaters because 93 percent of people eat meat I mean, the guy belongs back in the 40s, I think, to be honest, but there you go. So, yeah, I mean, it, um, I was reading the story again, actually, before we came on, and it was interesting, actually, and I, I take with some pinch of salt about the quality of the reporting, because in Worcester, our, our reporting is notoriously terrible for accuracy, so pinch of salt. But Louis is quoted as countering the argument, saying that vegetarian dishes were dishes that everyone could eat. So I think... I think I know what he means. I think we know what he means, what he's trying to get to. But obviously, technically, doesn't really work for, for vegans. Um, but as I say, I, I would want to think that perhaps that's a bit of um, inaccuracy in reporting in, there. Did he not say that plant-based dishes were something that everyone yeah, could eat? Yeah, yeah. I seem to remember the words plant-based and not the words vegetarian getting used, which confused me a bit because I thought, well, which is it? What have you done? Have you just taken meat off the menu or have you taken all animal products off? Because the article did not, it was not clear. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I've looked... Um, most recently the BBC article so there might even be discrepancy between the different articles um, possibly um, again yeah. sharing... is he vegan is this guy vegan this Louis no, he's person is I he believe. vegan um, he's, he's personally vegetarian yeah, is he? yeah we do have a we do have a I'm not being triggered no, here. No. We, do, we do have a, a we do have a vegan uh, green perspective councillor standing in Worcester uh, this year I believe so that's something um, someone to someone that um you know, hopefully local vegans can support. So, yeah, that would be good. If I'd known, I would have worded my email differently because I wrote him an excited email <laughs> thinking he was vegan. Um, just saying, no, don't listen to these people. You're doing the right thing and everything. But, um, oh, well, if I write to him again, I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing that was quite interesting, I think, is if, you know, the council have taken all this time to uh, make a thing of it, I think more to draw to attention to kind of jumping jumping on top of the Green Party for being all a bit hippie and all that. It would have probably been easier for them to attack him for not trying to make some kind of statement around the food because 
you know, he's quite clearly representing the Green Party. Um, so he's he's making a move that is arguably, from our views possibly, um, make some contribution to reducing some environmental impact. It'd have been a lot easier for them to say, well, why aren't you doing this really? So strange, strange approach, I think, from, um, again, Alan Amos, the local joker. There was maybe a heavy tick pea element. There was maybe a lot of legumes <laughs> going on there. Was, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's anti-chickpea, anti-legume. That'll be what it is. He's been reading that story. So. Uh, but yeah, that he was concerned about the biodiversity. <laughs> yeah, yeah that'll be what it maybe. was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I did follow up on the sort of uh, social media commentary, which you'd expect would be quite mixed. I mean, there was a lot of support, um, but there was there was the stuff you'd expect, really. It's like choice, you know, you're removing choice and my choice, my meat. You know the old the older uh, arguments. There was arguments even saying, "Oh, this is starting to represent the start of a North Korean state." This kind of thing. Um, you know, not people not getting too excited about it, obviously. Um, and then people saying, "Ah, oh, you know, the farmers are going to revolt soon. We'll be they'll be like the French. We'll be starting to burn stuff." I was like, well, "This is like six meals at a vegetarian. I don't think we're going to go that far." The, the other bit that was interesting was there was you know, some commentary saying, "I support my farmers," and you know. Where they're in, they're in tough times. I think people do forget farmers grow fruit and vegetables as well. You know, it's kind of not just dairy and and, and uh, cattle farmers out there. So a strange, a strange argument, I think, or, or a, a, just a lack of awareness. I think really. Overall, I I think a positive story because of drawing attention to it. But I accept that others would see it as maybe not enough. For me, it's a small victory. Um, I, I, I'll be happy to take. <laughs> I would say that like every time we're pushing the boat out with something that is either new or new-ish, you know, this isn't the first uh, council that has has made a move like this, but the first few times that things like this happen, it's going to hurt a bit more. If you think of exercising muscle for the first time, you're going to feel it a lot more the first few times. Um, and it requires people with a bit of backbone um, and a good motivation for doing it to stick their neck out, deal with a bit of abuse, put up with a bit of gammon feedback and uh, a bit of social media commentary. But actually, that's what paves, uh, I was gonna say paves the bridge. That's a very mixed analogy. But it, it kind of helps the next the next lot of people who are maybe not quite as brave to do it. And it, it helps normalise things, doesn't it? So shame he's having to put up with that stick, but good on him for doing it. And it just gets us nearer to, to these things being normalised, doesn't it? Julie, which story would you like to look at more closely this week? Well, I know we talked about hunting recently when we had our lovely Sabs on the show. Um, so I would like to do just a little quick comment on one of the stories there that is linked to hunting, the proposed hunting ban. So this is a proposal which affects legislation in England and Wales. It's about closing this loophole that exists in the legislation there because it's been this part's been done in Scotland already not that I'm showing off or anything but anyway Labour has said that they will eliminate hunting within five years of if they get in it's good news it's nothing new um, Jim McMahon said that back in December 2022 they've said it before but now, obviously, it's Steve Reid, who is the Shadow Environment Secretary. So he is now saying it. Five years isn't a very impressive time frame, really, for just 
kind of improving an existing piece of legislation. Um, you could argue that perhaps he needs to not do it that way if they get in and the, the whole bill just needs to be rewritten and a new legislation um, put in place. But basically what the loophole is all about is this thing called trail hunting. Unfortunately, Steve Reid got confused and mentioned drag hunting. There is no move to make drag hunting illegal and there is no reason to do so. They're two completely different things. Drag hunting has existed since the 1800s. It involves an artificial scent, usually aniseed. It's a pre-laid trail that is deliberately designed to lead hounds into safe places away from um, kind of animals or anything that roads or whatever where they might get into some kind of trouble so it's a predetermined route that the followers well the person like the so-called huntsman knows so that's drag hunting it's completely safe and it's been going on for centuries trail hunting is a new-ish invention it came about after the hunting ban because the people who were affected by the hunting ban felt that it was just going to be a temporary stop to their activities, if at all. They wanted to keep their hounds in practice, chasing foxes and killing them. So they designed a form of hunting using fox pee, or so they say, to keep their hounds trained. So they meet at the same places when they're trail hunting, and they go over the same areas where there would normally be foxes. They just use the same terrain as before. And the, another crucial difference is they use terrier men as well. So it is exactly like hunting. And as you can expect, even if, and they don't always do this, but even if they have laid a trail of sorts, even to get them started, you know, very ostentatiously, because those hounds are trained to pick up the scent of foxes, they will pick up the scent of foxes, real ones, when they're out there, or other animals and riot after those as well, because that's in their nature too. So they can then say, oh, we were hunting accidentally, illegally, and all the rest of it. But if Labour get in, they will make trail hunting illegal, as we've done in Scotland. And... They will also mean make, make it that it's not just the people who are doing the legal hunting that get done, it's the landowner who allows it to happen. And that will help to control people try, you know, who are just at it and trying to, to do it sort of under the radar. Because if the landowners think that they're going to get into bother, they might be less willing for it to happen on their land. So... All in all, it's a good thing. I do think, well, come on, England and Wales, keep up, will you? You know, we banned this years ago. It's not perfect in Scotland. We still have people breaking the law and going out hunting, even though our legislation is far stronger. So it's not an absolute guarantee cure-all for this horrible affliction of hunting that we have in our society. It's an, It's progress though absolutely 
But the fact of the matter is, and again, I'm sorry that I said it in the last episode, I'll say it again. I don't think that legislation is going to be the thing that ends hunting. The thing that has got rid of a lot of the hunts in Scotland has just been people sabbing them and the hunts getting fed up and there's fun getting spoiled. And then if fewer people turn up for the hunt, they don't get the same subscriptions and then they just, it's a business. They can't make it work financially because it's really expensive. So that's that's what we need to do. We need to either get out there sabbing or support the sabs and the hunt monitors and it's really easy to do that. You can, you know, go on the Hunt Saboteurs Association website and join up and give them a donation if you feel able to do so. You can also go on to um, Protect the Wilds website, protectthewild.org.uk and join their campaign to ban trail hunting as well and maybe even give them a wee donation if you feel like it but yeah there's things that you can do online to support the cause but it will be a combined effort yes it's great to have this legislation but there is nothing to beat a bit of action and a bit of protest against the hunt as well. I I hear what you say about legislation but I, I do think it's an indication of the just how the general public feels about hunting if it does sort of become a stronger in law the anti-hunting thing and the, the the anti-trail hunting i just wonder does anybody know what the other parties are saying about legislation because i feel woefully ignorant i'm imagining that the Green Party is anti-hunting. Not sure we've seen the latest manifestos for the next election yet, have we really? That's the thing. Hopefully they'll all jump on board with it as well, the other parties. As we've seen in other countries with regards to circuses or, or whatever, like you've actually got to uphold that law. And as we've heard in the in the brilliant Vegan Talk special on hunting, a lot of what people are getting away with because it's done in such remote rural areas is, is, is stuff that's illegal anyway so um you can make the law as tight as you want but it has to be upheld and if that has to take the form of direct action then that's that's great too but um like you say Kate it's it's just a sign that that more and more people are, are getting behind it yeah oh gosh i hope it doesn't i hope it doesn't re- rely on a, on a general election in this country going a certain way at the end of the year as with all change it needs different types of action so yeah it needs the hunt sabs needs the protests it needs the legal aspects but i think also things like well, it's been quite interesting reading in some of the hunt sab literature admittedly which i haven't looked at too much lately but going back a year or so ago where they were getting a lot of focus on looking at the tax dodge elements of more to do with shooting um i think but there's a lot of that sort of stuff where we can impact these events through financial irregularities, I think, for much of for, for much of a better phrase, that's another powerful way I think of looking at things. A bit like when you've got powerful companies who are doing bad things, and you can kind of tap into the shareholders. There's a kind of pure financial aspect to it as well that I think we could be exploiting as well. But yeah, loads of different things we can do. It's not just one thing. I think it's just you know, the whole myriad of stuff to make change. And last but not least, what caught your eye in the news this week? Um, so I just want to touch on this quickly um, because I am going to be critical of some activism and that's not what I like to do really, but I think it's 
important to just kind of shine a light on things sometimes. I think it's a, a broader theme that's been irritating me a lot recently has been how as a movement, we are falling into the traps of sensationalism and hyperbole that that are part of the dominant media. And I understand why people will follow those tactics and those strategies, because we want veganism and animal rights to be a mainstream concept. However, I really, I really don't like it. It really rubs me up the wrong way. I was very critical of Christspiracy. I really didn't like that. And I've got to say, I think the publicity around Pignorant. I really didn't like that. That's the new film that is out on Amazon Prime featuring Joey Carbstrong. I think the film itself is broadly pretty good. However, all of the PR around it is around Joey Carbstrong does this death-defying thing, ex-gang member, all of this. And I just kind of, when you look at that, it looks like it's a film about him. And yes, he's featuring in it. Yes, he's the the main lead. But like, sure, surely we need to be focusing on pigs and gas chambers and what's going on. Now, I, I know we've got to be strategic about how do we get people to watch these films? We've discussed it before on the show. Like it's a it's a hard sell to make somebody watch something they don't want to watch for an hour and a half. I get that. And maybe I'm being a bit naive. Maybe I'm being a bit idealist. But if you look at, we've got a link in the show notes, but if you look at any PR, around this the name joey carbstrong appears in the pr like way more than than pigs and animals and i'm not suggesting that he's egocentric or this is about his promoting his ego or anything like that i think that's something we do need to be careful of in the movement that as activists we're remembering what we're doing this for and it's it's if people need to make a living from these things or that's how they kind of choose to go about it then yeah, okay, there's an element of looking after your personal profile and, and things like that. But I, I really didn't like the way that it was done. And I'll be honest, it, it put me off watching it. Um, and then I thought, no, come on, if you want to have an informed opinion, you have to you have to get past that. But maybe I've got more of an incentive because I'm going to talk about it on a podcast, whereas a lot of people, particularly those within the vegan movement, I, I think might look at this and think, why do I want to watch that? It looks like a big ego trip or it looks like it's all about sensationalism rather than actually improving outcomes for animals, which is what our, our movement should be about. But I, I just wondered, the rest of you, what did you make of the, the PR around it? Have you seen the, the trailer? Have you seen the film? Like, am I just being really cross? So, Anthony, you don't like it. <laughs> but I wonder... There must be people who've done studies on this to find out what is the most effective way of getting people to watch whatever media and what have you. Maybe this is a really effective way. I don't know whether we like it or not personally. I think you're being really rose-tinted there, <laughs> thinking that this PR team have looked at studies and thought, this is the best way. No, no, no. I think they're saying... Oh, Joey Carbstrong's an attractive man. It sounds like I'm really jealous. Like, I'm not. I think he's brilliant. I really do think he does a lot of great stuff. But, like, I think they've just gone, oh, let's just make it all about him. That'll get people watching it. And I think we've got to be better than that. Unfortunately, though, people are drawn into stories about people more than animals. Vegans, maybe not, but I guess they're trying to have a wider reach than vegans who already care about the pigs, you know. 
beyond pig sandwiches. So I don't know, but it's really interesting to see how well this film does. I mean, I intend to watch it as well, probably most of it from sitting behind a cushion with a big block box of tissues or something. I don't know, but um, it hasn't put me off the idea of watching it. I definitely want... In fact, I'm, maybe I want to watch it more. I don't know. The feeling of missing out. I'm getting the FOMO, maybe, if I, if I don't watch it. I've watched the trailer... It didn't make me want to watch the film particularly. I felt slightly confused, but I don't know how sort of carefully I was watching the trailer. I, I couldn't quite understand what the film... I know that sounds ridiculous, but I couldn't quite understand the point he was making in the film because I was kind of in my head, I was thinking, what did you think happened in a gas chamber that's intending to kill pigs? You know, how... What is the surprise about this or the thing that you are revealing to the world that is so that is any more shocking than it is as it is that innocent little animals are getting put in a chamber and gassed? I mean, I know he's going to be in there with them, but what's the I thing? I think something that has happened since Cowspiracy and again um, with What the Health and Seaspiracy is that there is a narrative format that a lot of these documentaries take that they've seen. I think Cowspiracy was the first to do it, where they've seen that this this format of you've got a central figure who appears in the film and they make out that they're discovering things as they go. And they're like, oh my goodness, I found out that this happened. So then I went to speak to this person and they told me this. And then that led me to uncover this. And actually, it's a load of old tosh. They know exactly what happens, but it's just this narrative arc. And I think it probably worked quite well a few years ago, but I think it's a format that's a little bit well-worn now. And so like you say, Julie, you're kind of, you know, Joey Carbstrong's team's probably gone, oh yeah, let's do this whole thing where he pretends he doesn't know what's going to happen. And it actually, it's, it's um, yeah, it's a record that's been played a few too many times and it can look a bit convoluted. But, but also as well, um, I picked up from the trailer, I could have got this completely wrong because I, it, it was making me distance myself with every second and I was just thinking more and more I'm never watching this I don't even want to to engage with this in any way it just looks absolutely so overhyped and way too much Joey Carbstrong in my face but I was just thinking he seems to be making out that he had to go in undercover and in secret how can you do that with a you know the amount of crew that were around him and everything but if he had got in touch with the pig people and said look something in me makes me want to go in here <laughs> with the pigs they would have just gone hey you vegan be our guest they would just they would have put him in there no bother they would have been fine i don't think he needed to try and cover that Less up exciting, though. <laughs> they would have put him in there like, we need we need a narrative arc <laughs> for the film he has to be seen to be doing it undercover. I, I, oh. I know, I know. I don't want to sound like I don't like Joy Carbstrong. I admire the things he's managed to do. He can reach audiences that other people don't get to, definitely. I've met him and I think I'll be meeting him again. I think he's coming to East Lothian. So, but I have met him. I did a vigil with him at the most godforsaken slaughterhouse in Scotland in minus seven degrees temperatures and everything. It was a really hard slog and he he was he was really extra. 
he really gave it his all. Um, <laughs> he's quite an extra kind of person. But no disrespect to Joey and huge admiration for the work he's doing. I wasn't quite sure, and, and this makes me sound like I'm being bitchy, and I honestly am not, but I wasn't quite sure about the sort of inclusion of the girlfriend in the in the trailer as well. I don't know, it just, again, there was a lot of personalities in there and not many yeah, picks. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with with looking at things with a critical eye with a view to improving things with subsequent projects like if we don't do that as a movement then we're a bit screwed aren't we we're not we're not going to get better at stuff and certainly none of this is meant as a personal attack it's more just a stylistic thing in terms of well how does your PR team go about this and I thought it looked a bit cheap to me a bit a bit base but then but then we need to uh, attract everybody don't we so I need to get off my high horse I think I've seen I've seen the uh, trailer I've not watched it uh, I will watch it. I felt a bit confused about it as well when I watched it. But then sometimes trailers can be a bit like bam, 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 and you're like, what? Well, I don't, know. I don't really understand. I think the thing, and it's, you've just said it there, Anthony. To be fair, but the thing that I was thinking as we were talking about that was we're not the target audience for this. It's about we what all the all the sort of stylistic stuff and the and the kind of uh, Jerry Carpstrong eye candy sort of stuff is all there for to try and attract non-vegans and people who haven't thought about this sort of thing going forward and that's where we need to be reaching to and if it feels a bit icky in terms of style or whatever I would sit there and cringe myself but I would always be thinking this isn't great but hey if there's 10,000 people going to watch this who like this sort of style and it makes them think go it go for it I would lap it up yeah I I I think that's that's great that's great getting people through the door I still want some some stuff out there with integrity that is 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 there I don't know once once you've kind of got through the vegan gate or you're or kind of you're a bit more open-minded to exploring a bit more I wouldn't want everything that we do to be that hyperbolic and sensationalist and personality driven because that's not the point of the Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're missing something if that's not there. But like you say, get th- get people through the door. We'll worry about that that, <laughs> that later. Yes, yeah. so, so, I suppose the alternative is if you know if you've got me and you Ant as the eye candy trying to sell the best documentary <laughs> in the world. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we'll get like view wise. You know, so we'll get a lot of Norwegian folk singers. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite niche, quite niche. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, well, let's now look at this week's main story. The sad news that animal rights activist, lawyer and philosopher Stephen Wise has died aged 73. In 1980, aged 29, after a friend gave him a copy of Animal Liberation, A New Ethics for Our Treatment of Animals by Peter Singer, Stephen was transformed from a personal injury and criminal defence lawyer into a fervid animal rights crusader. Yeah, he initially defended individual animals, including dogs condemned to death for attacking humans, but he soon formed organisations and became actively involved with attempts to redefine animals' rights as a whole, filing lawsuits to define chimpanzees as persons and to establish their right to what he called bodily liberty, 
over confinement. Much of his work was to recognise animals' personhood as cognitive, emotional and social beings who have the same moral and statutory entitlement to freedom that people do. Stephen was also the first president of the Animal Legal Defence Fund and the founder and president of the Non-Human Rights Project. He also taught courses on animal rights at Harvard and other law schools. He wrote several books, including Rattling the Cage, Toward Legal Rights for Animals, as well as Drawing the Line, Science and the Case for Animal Rights. And in 2005, Though the Heavens May Fall, the landmark trial that led to the end of human slavery. A bestseller about an English case that determined that a slave was a person with legal rights. In an interview, Stephen defined one of his key tenets, bodily liberty, as our cases are not about whether animals are being treated well or ill in captivity, they're about whether they should be held in captivity at all. Lawrence H. Tribe, a professor at Harvard Law School, said in an email that Mr. Wise will be remembered well beyond our time as one of the most far-sighted and influential pioneers in the history of animal rights and animal welfare. Steve's writing, litigation strategy and organisational energy have taken our efforts to protect non-human animals from unspeakable wrongs to a new and promising level. Now, by my maths, none of us here for this discussion were actively involved in the animal rights movement in the early 80s. I was. Beg your pardon, <laughs> never that's mind. my poor mental arithmetic. <laughs> oh, it's just because I look so young. That's you it. Do. That's it. It's all those climate-destroying legumes that you eat. <laughs> um, I would say it's, it's nonetheless clear to see what an impact Stephen's work has had since the early 80s when he he became involved in the scene and it contributes in the drive for rights for sentient beings. It, it clearly nudges the needle in the right direction. I'm interested though in, in what the four of us think the position of these sorts of legal battles like arguing the case for legal personhood for animals and animal rights. Where does that sit within the wider vegan and animal rights movement today like is it i mean we kind of touched upon it when we were talking about fox hunting um just there we've also covered stories in the news this week about you know tens of thousands of monkeys our, our closest relatives being abused like where does this sit it's a necessary evil unfortunately it's obvious to us you know we shouldn't even have to make those cases or make those points or prove or evidence anything at all but the law is a human-made construction, isn't it? And we live in an anthropocentric world. And there isn't. there are some animal rights lawyers out there, but very, very few. So I'm afraid it's us. We've got all the rights. It's, it's not good, but that's just it's the way it is, unfortunately. Do we think the laws themselves are what is making a difference? Or is it just that having a legal case in a courtroom gives a nice sort of megaphone to, to speak out these arguments and, and, and have them be heard. I think at this moment in time, it's probably drawing attention to things as much as anything else. Because in my mind, and I've not thought this through a lot here, but I just off the top of my head, I mean, you said how important is it? It's inexplicably fundamental, but it's also fundamentally something that's not going to change in any great degree, unless it's kind of quite a long-term change, I don't think. So... 
um, uh, it, it does it underlies everything, but it, uh, the, the law is a hellishly complicated beast. And even if you want to change something on a local council or get a crossing put in place, you know, that can take three years, let alone something fundamental as this. So I think we'd have to be realistic and say it's, you know, it's many years away that there'll be significant change sadly i think but to, so to bring attention to it I, I suppose at the moment is 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 a uh, again taking small victories um in my mind i agree with paul that it is fundamental and stephen wise himself he he sort of was mentioned he sort of went studied the uh the case about the first chap who the case about slavery that one and how I mean that's that's um, changed how everybody views slaves, and we, we've had you know women didn't used to have the right to vote or any rights at all. Actually, they were the property of their husbands, were they not? At some point, the, he's tried very hard, starting with animals like, for example, the chimps, who are most closely related to us, in trying to get them to have basic rights. I think that. If even those animals or like it was happy the elephant, I think was another was another case. If these animals are given rights, there's a chink in the armour of the animal agriculture industry that maybe all animals are going to start getting rights, and in which case they're sunk, aren't they? If only we could get uh, just 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 one right. I mean, there's there, apparently there's a there's a river which has got personhood now, isn't there? Yeah, it would make all the difference if we could just get just one 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 win in the courtroom, I think, um, on behalf of animals. We've all been out there advocating for animals in, in different ways, whether they're casual conversations or street activism, wearing a vegan runner's vest, vegan fare, whatever it is. We've we've had conversations with people about veganism. To what extent do we think that it's important as animal advocates that we've got a good understanding of these sorts of philosophical principles that that Stephen Wise has, has dedicated the vast majority of his life towards furthering? Like, is it something that, that we all need in our armour or is it just a, an added bonus if, if, if we can talk philosophically about these things? I think we can all recognise that animals are thinking, living beings that fear death and feel pain and at a basic level and I think that's probably enough to be getting on with but some of the more detailed in my opinion but some of the more detailed philosophical ideas there are are very interesting and complex and useful because it's very complicated actually some of the animal studies things they're incredibly complex and uh, the language is complex maybe that's not for everybody but on a fundamental level <laughs> you know we care about animals well complexity is definitely not my strong point either but what i would say is if we are the clever people here i don't mean us four i mean the human race but if we are as a lot of people seem to think, you know, the kind of superior to animals and we are the clever species and all the rest of it. If they're going to take that line, then fine. If you follow that logic, then you would think to yourself, well, we then have responsibility to exercise 
the fact that we have this intelligence, we have insight into our actions, we have control over our behavior, we have the opportunity to imagine different futures, we have the capacity for compassion for others. We've got all of those very sophisticated ways of thinking and imagining and shaping our own behavior and reflecting on our own behavior and influencing others. We've got all of those skills and abilities. So given that we have these things, it should be beholden on us to use them in a peaceful manner to the towards the other inhabitants of this earth who are maybe not as well equipped to defend themselves against us, if you like. And we also have all of the resources and can manufacture and invent and imagine absolutely boundless things. And we have done, not me personally, but so we can live without exploiting animals and eating them and wearing them and using them now because we're so blooming sophisticated. So we don't really need to be proven how clever the animals are if we don't want to. We just need to prove how clever we are and use all of these wonderful talents and capacities to their fullest and use them for the good of the animals, us and the earth. I think it depends who you're speaking to because there are people that I've interacted with who like to discuss things like veganism on a very deep philosophical level and um, you know kind of a moral maze kind of approach and the laws and and you know deep thinkers if you like and I'm not a deep thinker but I'll, I'll have a go and then others who that sort of conversation is just going to not appeal to them they're going to be more interested in if you're going to get them more towards veganism you need to talk to them more about recipes or something like that so I think it's one of those things to have in your back pocket like a lot of our conversations it's about having that range of different topics you can talk about to be ready to talk to the right people about but yeah it's not you're not going to be talking about it to everybody everybody it's just going to not be their thing it's not going to engage with them but i also think you know the law isn't the same as morals um unfortunately and the law does have a lot of parts to it that are not moral um so we are you know the law isn't perfect and never will be i don't think and it'll have discriminatory aspects in it yeah, it's riddled with it i think really if you ask most sort of legal experts it, so it's uh you've got that contained with as well Re- really interesting conversation to finish off the show with there i think i'd, I'd just add if you pop into a search engine ted talk and stephen wise you'll get a really really nice uh, conversation talk there that, that he gave um probably about 10 years ago now on the subject just like to uh, point people in the direction of another podcast if people are interested in finding out more about law in America particularly but if I I don't know if any of you have listened to the animal law podcast Marianne Sutherland I think is that Marianne Sutherland something like that anyway and um, it's part of our hen house if people have heard of that podcast and they have different speakers they look at different actions and various different things going through court and they have had Stephen on there it's really quite interesting it's quite technical but yes it's again it's very interesting and lots and lots of different issues that they look at um, all to do with animals 
Okay, well, do let us know your thoughts on what we've discussed in any of today's show or indeed the bits that we've touched on but not dived into in more detail. Is there anything we've missed this week or in fact got completely wrong? Let us know your opinions. Yes, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts on these or any other vegan or animal rights news stories out there. Get in touch with us by email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We're also at Enough of the Falafel on Facebook, Instagram or TikTok, where you can get little previews on the news we're covering in each episode. Yes, indeed. And speaking of upcoming episodes, from Thursday morning onwards, you'll have access to the next episode of Vegan Talk, where myself, Julie, Paul and Ants will be discussing why are vegans so triggered by vegetarians? Right, that's enough of the falafel for this week's vegan news. I've been Paul. I've been Anthony. I've been Julie. And I've been Kate. And this has been episode 43 of Vegan Week. This show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire and Flow Coffee Roasters. And they're such great people. They're offering all enough of the Falafel listeners a cheeky 10% off orders on their online store when using the code FALAFEL10. That's FALAFEL, the number 10. Fire and Flow are specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswold with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Yeah, they're a vegan founded company too. They're run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil, and they specialise in roasting and supplying wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. For the wholesale part of their operations, they work with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering, with free barista training and full technical support included. The products themselves are the result of their passion for working with skilled and ethical-minded farmers who produce the highest quality beans. Fire and Flow then roast them to perfection in small batches at their roastery in Sirencester, which you can visit at any time, book onto one of their barista courses or roastery tours via their website, fireandflowcoffee.co.uk. While you're there, you can check out the beautiful, fully vegan coffee shop on site. I've been there myself. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's open seven days a week from nine till three. The last time I went, it was a Sunday afternoon. It was glorious. It's just a fab place to hang out and feel good about life. Give them a follow on Instagram to get the latest at fireandflowcoffee. And for those online orders, remember the code exclusively for our brilliant Enough of the Falafel community. That is Falafel 10. 10 is 1 and 0. So Falafel 1, 0.